Welcome back to This Week at Windsor. This is Jonathan Hoffman filling in for Arden Beach, who is conspicuously absent again. And joining me today, I have Dr. Tim McBride, principal of Moreland College. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Good, good to be here. Yeah, so glad to uh, sit down and get to interview for you. So mm-hmm. uh, we, you're the principal of Moreland College. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a fairly new role for you? I think about three and a half months in. I, I stopped counting weeks a few weeks ago, but it's a, yeah, it, it's still very new. Still very new. Uh, in what were you doing before you took on the principal role? So I've been uh, teaching on faculty here since 2008. And uh, prior to becoming principal uh, for the four years before that, I looked after the Bible and theology faculty. Now, we'll get into more of what mm-hmm. entails, uh, what those roles entail, but mm-hmm. we got to get something out of the way. You're a Packers fan. I got oh, yeah. <laughs> to know how you feeling. Aaron Rodgers is gone. How you how you thinking about the Packers' chances this year? Uh, now they've fallen to two and three. I'm just, I've given up uh, on the year already. I've put a fork in them well before Thanksgiving. So, yes, I've, um, this this year will be a learning curve for Jordan Love. And I'm, I'm hoping this, he's shown some great promise, but we'll see. Yeah. What's your area of expertise? What's your area of research? And other, can, other than American football, yeah, yeah. we only, yeah, if only we all could do that. But yeah, uh, look, my um, yeah, my study. I started out sort of lecturing in in preaching and New Testament, and so my doctoral studies sort of put the two of them together. Uh, so in, in a nutshell, it's seeing the epistles of Paul in particular as being uh, written down speeches because most people couldn't read so uh, it had to be read out loud so it follows the form and function of an ancient speech Uh, and so what does that mean then for preaching when we're actually preaching on someone else's speech uh, knowing how speeches were supposed to function in the ancient world it teaches us you know to, to pay attention to what the author is doing with what they are saying. Now, full disclosure for those listening in our audience, mm-hmm. Tim is not only my principal, uh, in case you didn't know, I'm doing my PhD here through Morling. Tim is also one of my supervisors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Tim, you got to please don't tell any secrets out of school here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's it's been great to been great to work with you. Um, I remember you Likewise. telling me I remember you telling me one in one conversation that uh, you discovered that preaching is where you want to put your focus. So in terms mm-hmm. of conferences and, and things that you go and, and yeah. learn about, preaching is your focus. What have you, what kind of led you to that focus and mm-hmm. what are some things that you've noticed trend-wise in that field of homiletics? Sure. Uh, I think that the answer to your two-part question is probably the same answer in that one of the things that uh, in the last, so to say, 50 years in, in the the a theology of preaching, people have rediscovered what it means that texts don't just say things, they also do things. And mm. I sort of picked that up about 20 years ago when I was going through my undergrad, um, uh, some of the rhetorical approaches to preaching where you're, you're looking at what the author is doing, how they're attempting to persuade. Um, that to me, sort of turned on a light for what texts should be doing when we read them out 2,000 years later and then try to sort of somehow say how we should we live in light of it. A lot of the time we'd focused on the content. So what's Paul's theology in this part or what's you know this gospel telling about Jesus? And then we go, so how do we live in light of it? And we're sort of left to our own devices. Mm. And I think when we look more at this this idea of what texts are doing, um, it actually tells us the direction in which the application, at least in the first instance, ought to be. I mean, Paul was writing applied theology. He didn't write Romans to be a theological textbook and then go, well, I send it, oh, Rome, Rome will be a great place. <laughs> he actually writes it in order to address some problems in the, the Roman church. Um, uh, Scott McKnight's book, Reading Romans Backwards, is brilliant for that because he 
literally, as it says on the tin, reads Romans backwards. So you start with the people that he greets at the end, and then you uh, go then to chapters sort of 15, where it talks about Jews and Gentiles being able to work together within the one church body. And so you see all of the theology that he was going through from that we often focus on more from chapters 1 through 11 um, are really setting the stage in order to be applied to that particular context. So I think preaching needs to recapture in some way what the text was doing in the original situation. And then we go, oh, how are we like the Romans? Or how are we like the Corinthians? How are we different? And then see if we can land that in our own place and time um, rather than just, oh, this passage is about love. I'll give some cute stories about love and a bit of a challenge. And yeah, so it's a passion to see preaching, I suppose, the art of application being far more, um, not scientific, but certainly more, more have more principles to it. Now, full disclaimer, I did not, asked him to say that for mm-hmm. those of you listening at WDBC who've been following with us as we've been preaching through Romans backwards. Ah, uh, Tim has yeah. just told you why we're doing that. So he probably said it better than I ever could. Uh, so thank you for that, Tim. That was a sort of a, a plug that, that uh, I didn't know. That's an extra blessing. Um, is it hard for you when you go into a church and you listen to various types of preaching? Just take us behind the curtain a bit. As someone who like studies that, how do you feel sitting there? What's, what's your approach? Thankfully, yeah, in the churches that I, I, I attend regularly, I, we have you know, preaching that I, I very much enjoy. And, um, and normally, certainly my senior pastor and I will chat through difficult um, passages prior. will you know, often give me a ring. Ah, oh, preaching on this one, what do you reckon? And we'll actually chat about it beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really helpful thing to um, not necessarily you know, phone a friend, but just to have uh, when you are pairing, whether it's a Bible study or, or a sermon, um, to have another voice pushing back. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I think every preacher, no matter how experienced or inexperienced they are, it's a great practice to do. So you're into this role three months now as mm-hmm. principal. Uh, a couple questions around that. Is there a part that you find yourself enjoying that that was totally surprising you're like wow i didn't realize this would be this this great uh if so what would that be i didn't know how much i would enjoy the the chaos of probably the middle three days of the week okay where i, I I'm, I'm an introvert so mm-hmm. not meaning that i'm shy or anything but that i i draw strength from being alone and then if i'm with others i have to you know recharge after that but I've enjoyed meeting different people and solving problems together and bouncing from meeting to meeting in a way that I actually didn't think I would um, going into it. So that, that's actually really surprised me. Um, there's plenty of boring meetings and ones you have to have because of due process and everything like that. But the ones where you go, like I just had one a, a couple of hours ago where we've got a particular uh, group of pastors we're needing to train in a different kind of way. And we had people from a bunch of different parts of Baptist organizations there going, how can we solve this? That was great fun. It's really energizing. So yeah, I, I was surprised how, how much I enjoyed that aspect of it. Well, score one point for chaos. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> chaos and me. No, that's good. Uh, this is where I'm obliged to say that my usual co-host, Arden, who's not here, mm. uh, he often misquotes Jesus. that says, you know, let them have meetings and let them have them in abundance. <laughs> um, yes, we, we love meetings in, in the Baptist uh, the Baptist churches. Uh, mm. um, uh, I wonder if you can talk a bit about what you see as trends uh, in the churches. And maybe even before we get there, I should probably ask, what do you see the function of a place like Morling, an institution Mm. like Morling? How does theological education function in the life of God's kingdom? 
Yes, and that, that's a, that's an interesting question because Balling's history was that it was set up to train essentially pastors and missionaries um, over a hundred years ago. So that's that's our kind of core business, our charter for which we were set up. But if you want to look at the history of, of how that's changed, maybe in the last particularly the last generation. During the 90s, we started to get more students, which then became a majority of students who were studying Bible and theology, not because they felt called into vocational pastoral ministry, but they wanted to be better equipped as um, you know, Christians in their workplace, as, as lay leaders and contributors in the church and so on. And so, and that became a lot more part-time study and, and online um, and then live streaming, obviously, in recent years. So there's, there's been um, a growth in the number of the kinds of people who would study Bible and theology. So we wouldn't say that we equip pastors and missionaries anymore as our mission statement. It's we, um, you know, we want to equip women and men to make an impact for God in the world. Uh, and that may be in vocational ministry, it may be going overseas, it may be as a, a homemaker, it may be as someone who's in the secular workforce. So that's very much part of our Bible and theology faculty. And we have two other very significant faculties as well. Um, we have a counselling, chaplaincy and spiritual mm. care, uh, which is the one that's uh, been sort of growing the most over the last few years, uh, where we're intentionally equipping people to be Christian carers, to so counsellors, chaplains, um, a whole range of different um, functions there. And that is part of serving the church as well. And then the other faculty, uh, probably the, our smallest, but the one we, we think is going to play a very strategic role coming up soon, is that of the education faculty, where we're wanting to train uh, Christian teachers. So we have a Masters of Ed and Masters of Ed, of Ed Leadership, which is all about um, equipping the, the leaders, the future leaders of our Christian schools, um, which given the way our society is becoming more and more hostile to um, you know, kingdom values, I would say, we're going to need more and more of that, really wise leadership there that's theologically informed as well as ed- educationally excellent. And an initial teacher pro- education program, which is for you know, those who are starting out wanting to become teachers, they do it with us with an embedded practice model where they get matched up with a Christian school, they work a day a week as they're doing it as a teacher's aide and get mentored, apprenticed, things like that, so that by the end of it, it's quite likely that the school will go, you know what, you're our kind of person, do you want a job here? And so we're actually growing our own um, Christian teachers and making sure that the culture of our Christian schools remains the same. So I know it's a long answer, but we, we see ourselves as doing all of that, and all of that is about equipping God's people um, to be effective in the 21st century. So would it be fair to say that the doors are wide open and yeah. that anyone who's mm. who's a believer who who wants to grow in their knowledge and Mm. in the equipping for all different kinds of ministry, Mm. not just perhaps the traditional vocational ministries, pastors and missionaries, but... And, and, and all, all uh, different levels. Like some people will just turn up for the, uh, for the lectures, all of the fun, none of the assignments is what I, <laughs> I say. And so you can do that right through to, you know, bachelor's and master's and doctorate uh, degrees if that's what you, you want to do. So there's, there's a whole range of options. So back to trends mm. and... Uh, in the circles that I'm in, there's a common feeling that there's not many people who are entering vocational ministry right mm-hmm. now. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And if so, why is that? And and what mm-hmm. do you think? Is this just the new reality? Or is, is there something that the churches maybe perhaps mm-hmm. need to strengthen? Yeah. I, I, firstly, I'd agree with you wholeheartedly. It's a trend. And it's a trend not just in New South Wales Baptists. It's a trend, uh, I think, around the Western world. 
uh, there are fewer people going into vocational pastoral ministry. This this is this is a, a global yeah majority world quite different. Mm-hmm. Western world globally uh, a big issue, and the question for why that that is the the million dollar question. Um, and I think I have some answers to that question, but there's obviously many 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 layers to this. One of them is is what I was talking about when I spoke at Windsor back in January for anyone with a really really good memory about <laughs> calling all shepherds, where we've had a model of pastoral leadership. Um, particularly platformed in uh, you know the larger churches that sort of uh, promotes a CEO win at all costs trample on people kind of mentality. Um, at its best, you could say it's trying to emulate the um, the, the ruthlessness or the, the the wisdom of the the business world in running something so that people aren't just oh near enough's good enough because it's for God kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's ministry. That, that's probably the best I can say for it. At its worst, it, it allows bullying and toxic kind of behaviour. And mm-hmm. I think there's a generation that's looking at that going, I don't want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And so part of the reset needs to be um, reframing pastoral ministry as shepherding and caring for others in a way that invites more kinds of people other than those sort of obvious, you know, sort of superstar, rock star, CEO type people. Um, and connected to that then is the issue of churches, I think, need to have different expectations of their pastors. Because mm. if you look at pastoring over the last sort of 20 years with more and more compliance things and, and more and more of a consumerist culture in churches, then you add the chaos of the pandemic. A lot of young people, um, you know, Gen Z, are looking at, what their pastors have done over the last five years, and if they're Gen Z, they've probably only been paying attention for that. That and they go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that burnt out COVID pastor. I don't mm. want to be that person who's effectively a middle manager trying to appease a whole load of different groups. Mm. Um, that's just not. I if I want to make a difference for God, I'll do something different. Mm. So that's another factor. Uh, again, connected with that is the the toxic workplace that some churches can be. Um, even really good churches can have elements of you know real relational difficulty, and I think quite rightly our world has said we're not going to put up with that anymore. And Gen Z's been brought up to say don't put up with a toxic workplace. Um, and some of pastors maybe I'm like fifty or thereabouts. Um, some pastors older than me would be oh yeah we're told to just suck it up, and that's unhealthy. That's right. Somewhere in the middle there, we've got to say, yeah, ministry is a tough calling. It's not going to be an easy workplace. And you are going to have to suck some of it up for the gospel, but not as much as we've expected pastors <laughs> to do. I think that's it. And then the final reason I'll give is that it costs a lot. Um, I did the maths from when I went to uh, college back in 1999. Um, I quit my job and my church supported me a, a very small amount. I worked for about 10 hours a week at the church. We lived off my wife's salary and we managed to scrape through. You try doing that in Sydney today. Yeah, good luck. Um, so one of, the, one of the big issues is going to be if we, if we want people who are already in families rather than we've got plenty of students who are 20 21 living at home that's how they afford it if we want people who are maybe more mature and ready to be leading churches uh, we need to be investing right from the start of the process to enable them to live while they take time out to to study and be trained and and a lot more partnerships between churches rather than churches bringing the college going have you got anyone who's about to graduate and we go yeah, but they're already embedded in a church that's been investing in them for the last three years and that's where they're probably going to stay. So I know a whole bunch of things, but it, 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 it's becoming a, a crisis for smaller churches to find pastors um, and it's only going to get worse unless we actually address these, these factors. 
Really, I really appreciate that answer you gave because I think you touched on a lot of different aspects of how we got here. And there's probably more reasons as well. But yes. I think one that's often lost on many people outside of ministry is the cost factor. Mm. It is, I don't know how people do it here. And I had many people sacrifice for me, you know, my wife especially, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, other extended family, you know, people who kind of helped us mm -hmm. get through that training, those steps. And then uh, just to be able to be in a place and to be in a, you know, to be of a certain maturity, not that I've arrived, but to be at a certain maturity where you're able to actually lead because mm -hmm. it is challenging. So I really appreciate that. I want to jump now to a bit of Tim McBride, mm -hmm. not the principal, okay. not, not, the, not the researcher, the scholar. Uh, not even the preacher. Uh, tell me about tell me about Tim McBride and your journey with Jesus. Oh. What what were your you know what were your first memories of of faith and um, yeah how did how did Jesus become real to you? Well, I had, had the blessing of growing up in a Christian family with my parents, both very actively involved as lay leaders in our church. Um, and I suppose my, one of my earliest memories is coming to faith. In that, when I was about four and a half, I sort of had heard something at. Sunday school that kind of made sense, and I remember, um, you know, praying with my dad that night um, to receive Jesus. And yeah, as much as you can understand it at four and a half, that's what I responded to. And and, and I I haven't had a time where I've either not believed or not wanted to follow. Plenty of times where I've, I've struggled to be able to put it into practice, like we all do. That I, I looked at that as when I, I came to faith. So yeah, so there's no sort of great um, yeah change in life. I, I find that with people with testimonies like mine, um, a good thing is to keep in mind what would I have been like had I not come to faith when I was four and a half or when I was you know, primary school or whatever. What, would, what, what are the bad parts of my character that probably would have been left unchecked had I not had the benefit of the work of the Spirit and also a very godly wife who um, has shaped me into a better human being? Um, and you look at that and you compare that and you go, you know, I could have been this, I could have been that, and there's still that aspect to my character that I'm always working on, but that's what God has saved me from. And so I encourage those of you who are listening who do have that kind of testimony, kind of you know, create that full photo in your mind of what you would have been had you not had God intervene in your life earlier than maybe someone with the spectacular sort of, I was down and out, drug addict, and then God changed my life around, which was the story of my, my senior pastor back in, in, a, in high school. So, yeah. What would you say to somebody who is wondering about what God would actually do with their life? And I wonder if you might, might answer from the perspective of, was there a time in your life where you, you had a challenge in front of you? You, you, you had perhaps you know, a, a door or a path that, that you, you maybe thought God might be asking you to walk through, but you weren't quite sure. It just felt like a big step. How would you encourage somebody who's maybe looking at a big step or, or looking at a leap? Um, not just a leap in their personal life, but but really for God, they're going to have to put all their chips in uh, with the Lord. What would you say to somebody who's maybe in the midst of that tension right now? Yeah, I, I mean, there's been several moments in, in life where I've, I've gone through that. Uh, I remember one of them was when um, I suppose for a lot of my teenage years and early young adulthood, um, I'd been hiding behind being a musician going, that's my service to God. I'm pretty much every week doing this thing. And that was great. But I, I felt like being challenged, like, you need to do a bit more than just, just play piano for God kind of thing. And we had a, um, a, people were leaving, leaving our junior high youth group um, and no one was 
able to lead it the next year. They were sort of looking for it. And yeah, we've been relatively recently married. I looked at my wife and just said, oh, my parents like grew up with us as kids leading youth group. And it seemed like a great thing. You want to give it a go? And so we gave it a go. Um, and there was no sort of commitment beyond the, the year that we gave. And we actually really loved it. And um, yeah, so we got into other ministry in that way. So that after about three or four years, this is where the decision point happened where I was living for the weekend, not in the kind of cliched way, but in the way of I was more interested in doing what I was doing in church over the weekend than in my job in, um, I was a musician during the Keating recession, so I had to get a real job because um, <laughs> life music dried up and stuff. So I was working in the shipping industry in, in marketing and IT, and I, and I, like I was enjoying it, going places in there, but really my heart was on, on that. And I remember God kind of, Put in my, the idea in my head. I don't like to always claim, you know, God spoke to me, but it, it seemed to be that kind of time was, well, you could do this full time, you know. And I go, yeah, but really? And I felt that the, the response back came, I'm giving you a choice. Mm. I can use you in full time ministry. I can use you there in the shipping industry. Mm. What do you want to do? Um, you tell me. And uh, that's not normally the story, but I, I felt like, oh, that does make sense. It's not like God needs me in a particular place at a particular time. He's, he's got it all under control. I think he wants me to kind of, at that point, choose path. And then, yeah, 12 years later, I felt him making that same call to, do you want to stay in pastoral ministry or do you want to go into lecturing and train other pastors? So again, weighed that up. And, and I felt like he was saying, you choose. I've got things I can do through you either way. I mean, of course, he knows what I'm going to choose and all that sort of thing. But gave me that option. And I feel like recently with you know, putting in the application to be the principal, which I was surprised that ended up happening, um, again, that, that sort of choice moment. So what I would say is don't always think there's one path that if I miss that path, I've missed God's will for my life. I think God's will for your life is firstly that you be conformed to the image of his son and that you work for his kingdom, seek first his kingdom wherever you happen to be. Um, and then, sort of, okay, is it vocationally? Is it in, in the secular workforce? Is it whatever? I think that's a lot more God. Where's your heart? Where where are you interested in? And you just say, okay, I'm going to do this, God. um, Be with me as I do it, and we'll test it out. Now, of course, each time I would ask trusted friends to sort of, you know, is this a thing or is this just me? And each time there was confirmation by those who'd said yes to me and stuff. So it was not like I did that solo. But the idea, I think, that, that God, first and foremost, just wants a particular kind of character and orientation to your life. Exactly where it takes place is, I think, a very modern Western thing. You know, if you think about the first century, you didn't get that much choice. Uh, you're a slave, you probably had to remain a slave. Um, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, there wasn't a lot of mobility in what you did. Uh, so now we, I think we've taken God's guiding will and plopped that onto career choice as a, as a secular concept and Christianized it. And I think uh, it's more about, about character and direction. So. Lot, again, a long-winded answer to a simple question. No, I think that's helpful, and I appreciate the layers that you've that you've poured into that. I think that I think that's very helpful. Um, I don't know if you're a prophet or if you're the son of a prophet, but uh, I want to ask you. Want to ask you about the future? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we hit record, we were talking about AI, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, I, I remember I was talking to a pastor recently who. Had a junior minister working with him, and the junior minister is cracking out sermons that are, you know, top, top level. And he's like, "How are you doing this? How long does it take? Oh, it takes me two days." 
he finally put together that he was using AI. Uh, so tell me about AI and the future of preaching and the future of education. Uh, what are you guys thinking about this? First thing I'd like to find out that young preacher's name and find out what prompts he was using because um, we've been running, as I was telling you before we were uh, setting up to do this, um, we're running at the moment the first, the first time in our preaching unit that I teach uh, an AI assignment where for stu the student's second sermon for, that, for the course, uh, I, I want them to ask AI to give them a, an exegesis of the passage um, that they're preaching on and an application for you know, 21st century Australian congregation. And did they have to critique it using their brain and, um, and <laughs> some actual scholars that they can source rather than some you know, hazy process that AI uses? Um, and so far, I've marked about six of them, and universally, yeah, um, AI has come back with very, very... Uh, um, un uneducated exegesis, mm. stuff that you could probably do just by rephrasing the um, uh, re rephrasing the text and not being all that aware of some of the key touch points with Christian theology and exegetical controversy that pastors are trained in. Um, so it's a very naive reading of it. And then the application is often even worse. It's very generic, very um, non-specific, non non-concrete, you know, we should love people who aren't like ourselves or something like that. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, so from, from that, and the students are sort of getting, yeah, like we still have a job, I think. Now, I don't know whether AI is going to get any better, but I suspect there are two things that will stop it. Uh, one, humanly speaking, I think it's very difficult to give sermons that are a word on target to people who are known versus AI trying to kind of generically yeah. um, you know, pick an audience and... and so the fact that a pastor knows, that's why I think pastors who preach to their own congregations are better than guest speakers most of the time. The guest speaker might have a particular topic or a particular thing, but pastors know their people. So AI won't do that. Uh, and the other thing, of course, theologically, is that AI doesn't have the spirit of God. Um, it may have a whole lot of collection of stuff written by people who had the mind of God, but it's, it's not that, that kind of spiritual process as well. So the future of AI in sermons, I think, is, is limited. It may help research, but my fear is that it will make a generation of pastors lazy about understanding where the difficulties of interpretation are as AI sort of glosses over massive debates with, with a bit of a summary and you're not even aware. Whereas if you're know, good reading even a couple of commentaries, you'll clearly know after about... 30 minutes reading where the key difficulties are. And I fear that we'll have a bunch of people who'll see a sh shortcut. So part of the reason for this assignment is to show them how limiting it is. Well, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. Tim McBride, Principal of Moreland College. Such a privilege to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, if you see Arden Beach, tell them we got an APB out on him. We will look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks.